Hey everybody, this is Frank Rains Jr. from History Through the Eyes of Faith. Just wanted to give you a heads up to check the link in our bio for Kofi. It's a way that you can go and support the podcast if you like what you're hearing, and also a way to find some merchandise and some extra content. So check out the link in our bio, head over to Kofi. It's a great way to support the podcast. Did I miss anything, Ange? Oh, add in. You can also comment there, ask questions, and join us in a chat room. Oh, wow. And there's so that you can chat with us. Anyway, check out Kofi. The link is in our bio. I'm passionate about teaching this material because I think that we have to understand history to understand what's happening today. Pork tenderloins, only $3.29. And how did that become the way I experience church now? Hey, listen, you know, you've got the creation, we've got um, Abraham, we've got Moses, we've got all these things that have happened. We're now part of that story. Because to me, the <laughs> This is History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast with Angie Ferris. I'm your host, Frank Ranks Jr., along with producer Wes. We're glad you're here. It's History Through the Eyes of Faith, the podcast, episode 65. Yeah. <sighs> that was the addition. Ah. <laughs> this is Frank. Hey, we're here. Angie, say hey, Angie. Hey, Frank. All right. She's she's here, so that means that you're tuned in to the right place. Because if she wasn't here, this would not be the History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. And producer Wes is here, of course. Um, being we, his silent self. Being his silent self, encouraging us, helping us, answering questions. Uh, which, by the way, a couple episodes ago, I was commenting on apocalyptic, apocalypse, apocalypse coffee roasting. Mm-hmm. Apocalypse coffee roasters. There you go. In Melbourne, Florida. Yes. And I was trying to think of, you know, they got the whole brand alien thing. brand thing and ufo was on the coffee bat the beans on the mm-hmm. bag and because it was the invasion was the blend that i was given and i remembered ufo where i went and found out ufo stands for universal flavor um optimization there you go universal flavor optimization so that's what I was trying to think of two episodes ago. So if you've already reached out and let us know, uh, if not, please reach out and let us know. Kofi is the uh, link there in the bio. Um, you can go there. You can chat with us. We can hit you a message back every now and then. Um, and if you want to be- just enter into our little Discord server, then become a member at in the beginning level, and we've got some conversation happening there. Yeah, every now and then we we'll say hi. Got some good comments on the Muslim episode, and I've got some info I'm going to shoot back to that commenter. And so, anyway. All right. Cool. And you can find out when Frank's eating ribs. He throws that up there, too. Yeah, I knew, I'll try to remember what I was saying when I said yesterday, because I was. I was eating ribs. I was eating me a half rack of ribs, some green beans, and a house salad at Logan's Roadhouse. <laughs> That's right. I sure was. <laughs> After a day of being on the motocross track. Oh, wow. Um, I obviously was not on a, on a dirt bike, but uh, friends were. Um, so here we are. We're going to start off the episode with the mystery gift, episode 65, because we said we had one in 63, 
described it in 64. And here we are back in the studio is still here. And now what happens? I just open it. Well, or you can guess or discuss or there's a history to the box and the gift. And I think I described the box fairly well in episode 64 at the end. You can hit it back there if you want to last two minutes. It's a box that looks like it was uh, it was given as a gift um, at a at a baby shower. Is that it, right? No. No. At a wedding. No. Birthday party. No. It was the right theme. It just wasn't a baby shower. It was for a baby. It had to do with the baby. Okay. <laughs> it had to do with the baby. Yes. So it was a baby's birthday. Okay. It was before the baby's birthday. Well, I said a baby shower. Yeah, it wasn't a shower. It was a gift to the mom in the hospital? No. A gift to the baby in the hospital. If I have the box, who was it a gift to? To your granddaughter? I have the box. It was a gift to you? Yes. Oh. You've had that box? Since you were a baby? <laughs> Wes, Silent Wes laughed out loud oh, at that one. It was a gift to you for having a new grandchild. It's sort of. Oh my gosh, why is this got to be so difficult? It was actually at Christmas. It was a Christmas gift. Oh, announcing that you were going to have another grandchild. No, we already knew we were going to have a grandchild. Oh, it was announcing something else. The, the gender, yes, the sex. Thus of- you have... Pink and blue. Yes. And when you opened it up. There was something pink in there. Yes. Which is no longer in there because I'm reusing the box. So just reusing the box. But I thought the box was a good box to use this week. Why? (laughs) Because you may have your second grandchild this week. Yes. Okay. And the first one was a girl and the second one is a girl. Mm -hmm. And she should be here within a matter of days. By the time you're listening to this episode, she might even be a month old. Well, there you go. There you go. So we know what the box is from. Yes. But what's inside of it is not related. It's it's kind of interesting when I was putting it in there. Not related to when I got the box, but when I was putting it in there, I thought, this kind of works. This is kind of cool. Okay. And then is there a category of things? This is a gift, you're saying? It is a gift. Is it to be displayed in the studio? Yes. Okay. So is it along the theme of some of the things that we talk about in here? Sort of, yes, yeah, sort of. Um, and it also, it's two things. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's two things. <laughs> and the two things. Do they relate to each other? Yes. Are they coasters? No. <laughs> two things. Two things, like, what are the two things on the box? A ribbon. And they are? Pink and blue. Yeah. So it's a boy and a girl. Yes. Two things in there that are a boy and a girl. Yes. And they're little figurines? No. They're not, but they're a boy and a girl. Yes. Are they animals? No, you can open it now. Okay. (laughs) Wes is into it. He's standing up. So in describing this box, it looks much more sturdy than when I grabbed it. It kind (laughs) of crumpled in my hand. Yeah, it's one of those like you fold it into position boxes. It looked like a very solid cardboard box, and then I almost crushed it when I picked it up. Boy and a girl. There's tissue paper. Tissue paper. (laughs) There's two pieces of tissue paper, and he realized, oh, Oh, 
It's a, it's stickers. Oh, one's in one and one's in the other. All right, I like it. <laughs> uh, the girl sticker is Dolly Parton. Yep. Which is good for the studio. Yeah. And the boy sticker is Freddie Mercury. <laughs> which there's already a Freddie Mercury sticker in here. I thought there might be, but <coughs> he was too cute. But this is good. He's got a, a crown on, I guess, because he's the king of queen. I don't know if he's the queen or the or king. Or he's the champion. Or he's the champion. <laughs> and I didn't even think about that. Goes with our discussion. He's a king. I noticed I don't didn't take the price tags off the back. Wow. And Dolly, Dolly is uh, an icon. Yes. Well, so is Freddie Mercury, really. But Nashville, Dolly. And she's got a cowboy hat, right? She's got a cowboy hat. It says her name on it. So you don't Well, didn't that. you tell me you had a theme going on the door? You wanted the music theme on yeah, the door? Yeah, definitely. There's a music theme. We've got... So... There's Freddie Mercury. There's Elvis. There's uh, Johnny Cash. There's uh, Post Malone, Jimi Hendrix, um, and then there's like some music related uh, brands on the door. Um, Where's yeah. that Freddie? Where's the Freddie that's up there? See the I Love New York. Yes. Above it, holding up his hand straight above. Looks like oh yeah, cool, cool, there. cool. So that is completely different. <clears throat> if you look at. <clears throat> Right below the current Freddie Mercury on the door is a new sticker that you haven't seen. It's Jesus peeking around saying, I saw that. I thought I could tell somebody <laughs> was peeking. I couldn't read He's what He's peeking. I saw that. I saw that. So I thought it was pretty cool in the girl boy yeah. box that there was a girl and a boy. So we were in a cool, it was a toy shop, but it had a lot of adult things in there. Um, in, uh, yeah, <laughs> were, you, not, were you in a, you're in a, a what kind of toy shop were you in? Let's well, be clear. it was it was billed it was just billed as a toy store and it had lots of fun Was kids. there a name of the toy store? Was I it like I can't remember it now. It was, was like a person's. It wasn't name. like Marissa's toy store. No, it wasn't okay. that. No. Okay. <laughs> it was in Savannah. Okay. Georgia. <clears throat> but they had some like <laughs> this is no way this is not gonna sound bad now. <laughs> but they had they had lots of cool, fun games and mm. thinking games and mm -hmm. Costumes and yeah, toys, yeah, and action figures. They had action figures, and then they had board games. But there were some risque board games in there, like, and yeah. they also. And then they had the stickers were right up at the checkout. Mm -hmm. I can't even say one of the things I just remembered. Yeah, well, because I was have to. like. Oh, it it was it was pretty because Tim was Tim goes. Did you see that? <laughs> I was like, yes. He's like, ah. I mean, it was just right up front, and then they had a board game with the same theme, and I was like, this is. It just yeah. shows the difference of the culture that we live in because yeah. having that right up in the kids' toy store was just totally fine. I'm like, okay, whatever. Yeah, yeah. There's a store that um, I went into a year or so ago had similar kind of items, like random things. Um, but they had these uh, charcuterie boards, like the wooden boards, mm -hmm. and then have a carving, like a phrase carved into it. Yeah. And this one said charcuterie, and it had Cher's face on it. <laughs> and I went back to get it, and it was gone. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine at a party putting out your remember. charcuterie board? Yes. I can't remember <laughs> what else was, but there were some really cool stickers, and there was some that I wanted. Yeah, stickers are a big deal these days. Yeah. They had some really cool ones. And they're not cheap. Mm-mm. Uh-uh. 
So my my book's with me. Well, it's over there. That's covered in stickers. Yeah, well, the door. We're getting there. Yeah. Uh, we so, have a lot of coffee stickers, record label stickers, different record shop stickers. Um. Oh. Brands. So now we have Dolly and another Freddie as the king of queens. Yeah, but we're gonna have to. We can't have. If we're going to have multiple artists on the door, like more than one of something, we got to start adding another Elvis. we got to add... Well, I'll take Freddie back if y'all don't want him. No, no, we do. We do. Because he is a champion. All right. So, episode 65. Um, is this the, is this the, the episode that we retire? Sixty-five. Oh, um, oh, got to sign up for Medicare. Yeah, um, <laughs> we were leading up to I the conversations out, with. Uh, oh, you have to sign up for Medicare. If you're sixty-five, you have to but sign you're up. Not sixty-five. No, but it's like coming. Let's hope so. Yeah. Um, we were talking about Charlemagne meeting with the Pope Leo yes. the Third. Yes, and we. In 64, we talked about the importance of the papacy. Papacy. Well, how how it came to be so self-important. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Biased. Well, they would write these proclamations about themselves. So, like, yeah, it is biased. I'm sorry. It just is. Yeah. That's okay. Because you've already said that any... Content is going to be the bias of the yeah. creator. Yeah, but yeah. you're just self-important. Well, let's let's get into it. Let's talk about so it. So we we introduced Charlemagne and we talked about him being that he was a he was essentially ruling an empire that was not called an empire, right? And he was having relationships with other leaders, setting up uh, administration throughout his realm, and having like these local lords called counts that took care of things and and had emissaries that went out to check on the counts every year and all this stuff. And then we came and said, okay, we stopped that, and we went back and started and talked about how the papacy grew into what it was at the, had become by the year 800, which was that the popes had control over the Western church, um, influence throughout, Western society because of all the churches, the monasteries, but didn't have military protection and power. That alliance with Pepin, who was Charlemagne's father, created the Papal States. So the Pope was the ruler over the Papal States. Okay. One other thing I found in going back over the notes that I want to throw in here before we come to the meeting between Leo and Charlemagne is... Galatius was the Pope from 492 to 496, and he, there's a letter that was widely cited and circulated at the time where he expounded the theory that of the two legitimate powers that God had created to rule in the world, the spiritual power, which the Pope represented, held primacy over the secular whenever the two conflicted. Hmm. So that was a policy of the popes. So the other thing is, if the pope said it, God said it. Okay, so it's just not like a man with an opinion. Right. It's somebody with connections 
telling us how it is. And this particular pope was starting to expound the theory that if the two legitimate powers that God had created to rule in the world, the spiritual power which the pope represented, it held primacy over the secular whenever the two conflicted. Such theories were always harder to enact than to publish, but Glacius's words contributed significantly, significantly to theories about church-state relationships that would mold the character of the European society. Yeah. Okay. So if you are king, then you're to some degree under the influence of the Pope in the matter mm-hmm. of spiritual and matters and spiritual matters should have primacy over what did he call them? Secular when they conflict. Yeah. And we're going to see you, you might could sit there for a minute listener and think about any European history, you know, and could come to some stories pretty click, quickly where this was happening, where there was a conflict between the church and the ruler about but the church went out. Well, I don't know if it went out, but the Pope is saying that it should, right? Yeah. For some reason, I'm remembering some sort of Monty Python sketch. Probably. That someone says, I want to be king and Pope. And I don't know what that was from. Hang on to that, because as we go through the next few episodes, you will understand why they said that. Yeah, well, it might be a a, a movie that I watched about history or something. Yeah, but that's that's kind of cool. Okay, so... Now we're going to go back to this thing we called Charlemagne Saves Leo III, Rogue Pope, which, as I mentioned before, is a Wondrium lecture from the series called Living History, Experiencing Great Events of the Ancient and Medieval Worlds. Okay? And it's by Robert Garland, Ph.D. Wondrium, by the way, folks, is a streaming service that was uh, created out of the the great... Stories, yes. The great stories? The great Courses. The great there we courses. Go. We went through a whole advertisement on that a few episodes ago. Yeah. So Google Wondrium, you'll get it. Yeah. And so um, I put the bullet subscribed, and this was very. Oh, and correction to what I said before. I said that if you subscribe to Wondrium, you don't get the guidebook. I was wrong. You have access to the guidebook. It's very, it's valuable. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Did pretty they send cool. it you in the mail or something? Or no, no, it's it digital. Out? And it's a PDF. I don't. I don't oh. know if you could print it, but you can get access oh, to sure it and read it. Print it. Yeah. Oh, you could print it. <laughs> okay, so here we go. Charlemagne, the king of the. So this, I'm, I'm gonna. This is like storytelling. It really is a story. Okay. So some of this information might be information that we already have heard about Charlemagne, but it's part of painting the story. Okay. okay? So Charlemagne, the king of the Franks, has arrived in Rome, and Pope Leo III is charming him inside the Lateran Palace, which is the palace of the Pope, the principal residence of the Holy See. Holy See is another, you know, Mm. that's the bishopric of Rome. It's November 23rd, 800. Okay. Charlemagne has only recently swashbuckled his way across the Alps, at the head of a powerful army with a number of Frankish bishops in train. He is demonstrating that he is not only a warrior, but also a man of God. The people of Rome know that the king of the Franks is in town to lead an important diplomatic mission, but they have no notion of exactly what is about to transpire. 
In the more intimate quarters of the Lateran Palace, Pope Leo is going out of his way to do all that he can to charm and ingratiate himself with Charlemagne. He has been building a large, grandiose extension to the palace, but the Pope is in a more precarious position than the opulent grounds and the elaborate furnishings of his palace might indicate. Leo is in danger of losing the papal crown. Mm. And there's no doubt that he will do whatever it takes to persuade the king to stand by what may have been a private deal that the two very likely made in a secret a year earlier. So how is he going to lose it? Well, let's just see if they tell us. The two us. of them may have made a deal in secret a year earlier. Yes. And it says there's no uh, doubt that he will do whatever it takes to persuade the king to stand by what may have been a private deal that the two very likely made in a secret a year earlier. Okay? okay. Now the hour is nigh, and on Christmas Day, history will take a new turn. Charlemagne is the most powerful man in the Western world. His name means Charles the Great. His grandfather, Charles, Mar- Charles Martel, won the epic Battle of Tours 70 years earlier. Mm-hmm. Charles the Hammer. There we go. Thereby stemming the tide of a Muslim advance from the Iberian Peninsula into Northern Europe. Charlemagne sees himself as the defender of Christianity in the West. That's important to remember. Oh, yeah. He came to the throne. Like Justinian, defender of the faith. He came to the throne in 768 and has been king of the Franks for more than 30 years. By the way, Charlemagne was tall, so he literally stood out in a crowd. He was extremely tall for the time period. Okay. You could walk into a crowded room or any place. You can pick out which one's Charlemagne. Pretty cool. Okay. Um, Charlemagne oversees a vast realm that indicates most of modern day, that includes most of modern day France, most of Germany, northern Italy, and Austria, most of what we know of a Western Europe, apart from southern Italy and Sicily and the British Isles. And this is the first time since the fall of Rome that the European continent has been under unified rule. Okay. Furthermore, unlike the former Roman Empire, the Carolingian Empire is centered in northern Europe rather than the Mediterranean. Remember way back at the beginning of the last episode, we said the popes start looking north because of Islam, right? The king of the Franks has been able to accomplish all of this because he has an iron will and boundless energy and because he's utterly fearless. He is a warrior king, but he's a remarkable figure in other ways, too. He has overseen a revival of learning after a period of steady decline that followed the decay of the Roman Empire half a millennium before. He fosters education in monasteries and cathedrals, and he attracts to his court men of learning. In so doing, he brings political and cultural unity to Europe. Modern scholars rightly speak of Charlemagne's reign as the Carolingian Renaissance. At the same time, he is almost constantly engaged in warfare. And when he wins, which he generally does, he forces the people whom he conquers, notably the Saxons, to convert to Christianity. If any refuses to convert, he executes them. I don't think that's true. That happened one time. (laughs) Okay. Okay. He did fight the Saxons throughout his life, but I read in another source that he was very remorseful for the way that he executed those who would not convert at this one point in time, okay? Mm. Our best source for Charlemagne is The Life of Charlemagne, written by a learned monk named Einhard in 814, two or three years after Charlemagne's death. Now, what's interesting is I've, I've read that book, and I've got that book. 
which I thought not was... Not the actual copy, not the first edition. Not the first edition, not in Latin. It was written in Latin, but I've got an English translation, and it's been pretty interesting. Okay. Pretty interesting. Okay. Um, let's see, get back to my play. Einhard uh, served Charlemagne in an administrative capacity. It is a court biography and therefore is flattering to its subject. But Einhard seems to have been in a position to observe his subject quite closely because he provides a fairly intimate portrait portrait of him. Okay. Now that's the story about Charlemagne. Now he's mm. going to tell us about Leo. Okay. Pope Leo is the formal cardinal priest of Santa Susanna in Rome. That means he came from Rome when he was elected to Pope. He was already in Rome. He is a Roman of common birth and modest family who has tenaciously, somewhat unexpectedly risen, risen through the church hierarchy until ascending to the papal throne on December 26, 795, five years earlier. As soon as he is elected, Leo sends the keys of the tomb of St. Peter to Charlemagne and requests that the king send a legate or ambassador to the Holy See. So he's okay. connecting with Charlemagne right off the bat. Charlemagne complies, saying that it is his duty to defend the Pope, adding that it is the Pope's duty, in turn, to pray for the king's victory in war. And so okay. that's the relationship between king and priest, right? Okay. Since that date, five years earlier, Leo's claim to the papal throne has been repeatedly challenged and has been, and he has been charged with perjury and fornication. The Pope? Yes. That can't be true. This is a period during which open feuding frequently erupts between supporters of rival claimants to the Holy See. People that want to take the position. Yes, so they're open feuding and accusing each other of things. Eighteen months earlier, a mob of armed men laid violent hands on Leo during a procession that was taking place in Rome in honor of San Lorenzo or St. Lawrence. They knocked him down, attempted to cut off his tongue, and gouge out his eye. Okay. That was 18 months before this visit from Charlemagne. Uh -huh. Somehow, Leo manages to escape and <clears throat> flees across the Alps. Mm. He heads for Paderborn, a river town near Natural Springs in the modern-day state of Westphalia in Germany, where Charlemagne is establishing a new bishopric or district under a bishop's control. Arriving in Paderborn, Leo throws himself at Charlemagne's mercy, proclaiming that his enemy succeeded at maiming his eyes and tongue, but that a miracle has occurred. So he's claiming that they were successful, but he's been healed. His eyesight has been restored and his tongue has grown back. What? That's what he's claiming. Now, is this the rogue Leo? Yeah. Okay. Pope Leo. But that this guy who's telling the story named him that. So, right. okay. I, I get it. Pope, Pope Leo then asked Charlemagne to support his efforts to recover the papal throne. Okay, now remember they had a secret meeting a year before? This would about line up with that? Yeah. Okay, so he's attacked, tried to cut off his tongue, gouge out his eyes. He arrives at Charlemagne, says, hey, they were successful, but miracles occurred. My side is back. My tongue grew back. History does not record whether Charlemagne believes Leo's claim of miracle cures. But as Western civilization's self-proclaimed defender of Christianity, because that's how he saw himself, mm -hmm. the king of the Franks feels obligated to come to the aid of this disenfranchised pope. Charlemagne sees himself as bound by a document known today as Symmachian forgeries. The forgeries take their name from Symmachus, an early 6th century pope, in order to bolster Symmachus's claim to the throne at a time when there were two rival claimants, the Roman Curia, or Senate, forged documents that it claimed had been produced long before. 
the Curia, which is the administrative arm of the Holy See, asserted that a pope as the successor of St. Peter could not be brought to judgment in a court of law because the occupant of the Holy See cannot be judged by anyone. The forgeries provided authoritative justification for the papal equivalent of what today we call executive privilege. Okay. Can't go to a court of law because the Holy See cannot be judged by anyone. Charlemagne accepts the legitimacy of these forged documents and agrees very likely with some reluctance to come to Rome to give judgment. So, because he's the king, he can give judgment. So Leo is saying, have mercy on me. Miracle, I've been cured. I need your help. I need you to give so me positive. So what are the forgeries? What was being forged? Um, a pope in the 6th century, at the time when there were two rival claimants for the throne, had the Roman Curia or Senate, which is the administrative arm of the Bishop of Rome, to forge documents as if they had been written before this is happening, a okay. long time before, claiming essentially executive privilege, privilege that the Pope can't be judged, okay? Okay. So, Charlemagne accepts it, and he provides, and probably with some reluctance agrees, come to Rome to give judgment. He also provides Leo with a military escort back to Rome, although he doesn't accompany the Pope at that time. Instead, he spends the next 18 months visiting various parts of his kingdom, yet he knows that his presence at Leo's side will ultimately be required. When Leo returns to Rome, the populace apparently receives him with great joy. Charlemagne's envoys put his enemies on trial, and when they are unable to establish the Pope's guilt or innocence, they imprison them. The long delay now gives the Pope time to plan for Charlemagne's visit. He knows that he's still in jeopardy. He commissions a spectacular mosaic that depicts St. Peter handing a papal vestment to Leo and a military standard to Charlemagne to adorn the audience chamber of the Lateran Palace. So if you come into the chamber to meet with the Pope, you're going to see this outstanding, I don't know about now, but at the time, outstanding mosaic that shows St. Peter giving papal vestment to Leo and a military standard to Charlemagne. So he's marrying them together. Mm -hmm. Peter has appointed both of us, okay? It so signals, what is he afraid he's going to lose? Okay, keep going. He's been accused of, of, what was it, fornication and what was the other thing? Lying? Or I don't remember yeah. what that thing was. And so they couldn't prove that he was guilty, so they've been locked up, but the king has to come and say, Make okay? Make a decision. Yes. So this mural signifies that in God's eyes, the king of Franks is on an equal footing with the pope. When Leo learns that Charlemagne is at least on at last on his way to Rome, he journeys to the twelfth milestone outside the city, accompanied by a large and impressive entourage. This is to signal his immense gratitude to Charlemagne and his expectation that his patron will clear him of criminal charges. The declared purpose of Charlemagne's visit is that he will preside over the Vatican Council proceedings that will examine whether there is any substance to the charges brought against the Pope. The council consists of bishops from all over Western Europe, particularly France and Italy. Charlemagne may have no doubts about Leah's culpability, much less about his rascality, but he is concerned to uphold the authority of the papacy. So it's a kind of deal like we've got to uphold the th authority of the papacy regardless of what this guy's done. The trial turns out to be something of a mockery. Charlemagne invoking the 
forgeries pronounces that the Vatican Council has no authority to stand in judgment of a pope. All the Holy Father is required to do to be acquitted is to swear an oath on the Gospels that he is completely innocent, which Leo dutifully does. Charlemagne then condemns his accusers to death, although at Leo's request, he later commutes their sentence to excommunication. Mm. Okay, now what happens? Leo has gotten from Charlemagne what he wanted. He's been officially absolved of guilt. And the rumor is that he's going to demonstrate his gratitude in some very palpable, papal way. On Christmas morning in the year 800, the Nativity Mass is just now being observed at Old St. Peter's Basilica, the principal church in the West. Leo is conducting the Mass. At a certain point in the service, something extraordinary happens. Uh Uh-oh. Charlemagne has been kneeling, and when he rises to his feet, Leo steps forward, places a circlet of gold on his head, and anoints him with the chrism, the the holy oil. Charlemagne is being crowned Emperor of the Romans. After the crown is placed on Charlemagne's head, everyone, including Pope Leo, bows before him. Einhard tells us that Charlemagne is completely taken aback by the coronation and that he later declares that he would never have set foot in the church had he known beforehand what Leo was planning. This suggests that Charlemagne was not only unprepared but also angry at being crowned. Many scholars suspect that Charlemagne and Leo hatched the coronation plan when Leo came to Paderborn in the summer of 799. Hmm. It would seem to be a fitting quid pro quo for services rendered. The crown does not give Charlemagne any entitlement to march to Constantinople and assert his authority over the eastern half of the historical Roman Empire or over the eastern church, which is very different from the church in the West. In a broader sense, however, the coronation is absolutely decisive. It solidifies the existence of two distinct churches, one in the Latin West and the other in the Greek East, both as positive affirmation, the coronation, and as negative affirmation, setting them up as counterpoints and mm-hmm. future rivals. Furthermore, the coronation reinforces a recognition that cultural unity underscores the Latin West just as it does the Greek East. So we're moving to the same footing. You have your emperor and your patriarch, and now we have our emperor yeah, and our pope. Okay. Henceforth, the Eastern and Western emperors will vie with one another and make competing claims both to imperial authority and as to which of their Christian traditions is genuine. That starts and goes on. And it kind of been happening before. And like I said, we're going to, a couple hundred years down, we're going to talk about that history and the major events in it. Um, In essence, the seeds of this struggle are taking root at the moment of Charlemagne's crowning, a brilliantly staged and dramatic event. In actuality, this struggle begins just before the coronation when Charlemagne receives the keys of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre from the Patriarch of Jerusalem. The Church and the Holy Sepulchre, where is the body of Christ is said to be buried, is where the body of Christ is said to have been buried, so giving the keys to this church to Charlemagne would be of great symbolic importance. Not only is Charlemagne's personal prestige increased as a result of the Christmas Day coronation, but the rascally Pope Leo is every bit as much the beneficiary. At the most public moment in the story of the crowning itself, Leo makes it known that it is he alone, the Pope, who has the power to raise a mere monarch to the level of emperor. Hmm. It's a power play by him too, right? In so doing, he demonstrates the supremacy of papal authority over temporal authority. Back to what Glacius had announced. The moment when the crown descends on Charlemagne's head doesn't indeed change history. 
It not only shores up the papacy, but as the Carolingian Empire includes most of Western Europe, it gives birth to the notion of Europe. Yeah. Charlemagne will spend much of his last years warding off incursions by the Vikings and crushing rebellions, particularly among the Saxons, although he resorts to diplomacy as much as possible to resolve tensions with his neighbors. Charlemagne dies at the age of 71 in January 1814, 13 years, 814, 13 years after the coronation. He is succeeded by his only surviving legitimate son, Louis the Pious, whom he crowned the year before his death. Um, Leo remains securely on the papal throne until the death of Charlemagne when his enemies again begin to conspire against him, but Leo lives only two more years after Charlemagne. So that crowning of Charlemagne as the Holy Roman Emperor is one of the turning points in Christian history that Mark Knoll comes out. Yeah, It's the beginning of Western Europe. That title of Holy Roman Emperor stays around until the First World War hmm. or the late 1800s. I don't remember when the title went away. The family was still around. It changes a little bit, and we'll talk about that after Charlemagne because of invasions and some changes. But then it's there, and, it, and it's not the same amount of area because of invasions. But so then, so it's now like the Pope has an emperor. The Pope has a military hand. Do you see the... Is some significance yeah. jumping out at you? Yeah, it's like a combination of well, combination not the best word. It's a combining of power almost. To use that word. I mean, the power of the church is they're saying is the most supreme, but he has the emperor on his side. They're working together. Yeah. And it, and Charlemagne seems to indicate that he wouldn't have willingly taken the title of emperor. And some historians think that that's accurate because that he doesn't want to ruffle the feathers of the Eastern Empire, right, of what was still called the Rome. So it's interesting because you have a Roman emperor. All right, like we're calling it Byzantine, but that's just for clarification so that we'll know what we're talking about. But at the time, that was the Roman emperor, and that empire was the Romans, and yet Leo crowns someone else, Holy Roman Emperor. Yeah. Adds that holy title, probably because they're associated with the church. Yeah, making a point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's really interesting to me. It, um, let me just ask you this out of curiosity. Um. Before, like, we started doing this podcast or talking about this stuff, had you ever thought much or heard about Orthodox Christianity? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had, and I would always use the term Greek Orthodox. That might be different than Orthodox Christianity. It's not really. Orthodox is a more general term. Greek is one part of that. That's what I mean. I mean, it may yeah. not be the same thing. Yeah. Um, but I, I honestly, n the short answer is no. I didn't know that there was such a divide that goes way back, you know, to a few hundred years, uh, CE. Yeah. Of two different types of Christianity. 
that, yeah. but I've never seen, I've never, and, and then you'll correct me here, but I'm not aware of those two types of Christianity being in war with each other. Just maybe like an agree to disagree kind of a situation. When you say n- never like a, a physical war, no. Well, right. we will talk about one instant in a few hundred years, but but usually never not really a declared war or anything. And it really was all the same church. It was that moving of the head of the empire over to Constantinople mm-hmm. and then the, the the political collapse of the western part of the empire that started that divide. And then all of that's happening at the same time that they're starting to disagree about how to talk about theological things. Yeah. But both the Catholic Church, the Protestant Church... And the Orthodox Church all hold to the councils up through the Council of Chalcedon. They all agree to those conclusions. So so their basic belief system is not radically different. The Catholic Church then progresses to this papal supremacy and this mm-hmm. idea that this person can be the vo- voice of God. And the Orthodox Church stays a little bit more collegial with several patriarchs leaders of the church who are then first among equals, like the 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 patriarch in Constantinople. There is kind of an authority structure, but not an authority structure in this person gets to make all the decisions, but this is the voice that we need to hear from, you right, know, that kind right. of thing. But anyway, we're going to talk considerably about that a little bit further down the road, but I just, I'm, a lot of times when I'm talking about this with people, people just had no idea that it's all one church, you know, yeah. and then over time, the reasons, and then we'll get into, you know, all the reasons of Well, the, and I've always felt like the Catholic Church was Christian, you know, like I didn't. Yeah, yeah it's a part of Christianity, right? I, you know, you, you have these people that are like, I don't, I don't know, these people, extremists, I guess, that would be anti-Catholic, but consider themselves Protestant. Yeah. And and I I mean I can't or just anti-Catholic in general like maybe anti-Muslim or anti-Jew or anti-whatever, but I've never I just have always accepted the fact that Catholicism is a the origin of my faith, but maybe I don't believe all the same things that they believe th- theologically. Pull, pulling apart different different aspects of the faith. Yeah, I think you're. Think you're right there. Um, kind of looking at, ahead about what we've got coming. So we're going to continue talking about then. There's a lot about Charlemagne that I haven't said yet because I didn't want to say it until we got him um, crowned emperor. Okay, but as you can tell, I think this happened in 800. I think his date of death was 814, right? And, or something around there. Yes, in 814. And he ruled for 30-something years, so more most of his ruling was before this coronation. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, or at least half of it was. And so he was very committed to his faith in the church, not in the church, his faith and the church, before that, and we talked about, we heard about Clovis's conversion, and Clovis was his great grandfather. 
No, Clovis wasn't related to him, but Clovis is what he was one of the Merovingian kings, okay? Charles Montel was his grandfather, but he Clovis is the one who brings uh Roman Christianity into the Franks. Mm-hmm. Charlemagne had a desire to glorify God and to do his best to create a Christian kingdom here on earth. And we're going to spend a good deal of time going forward talking about that and talking about how that happened. Um, what were the elements of that? Because, so as we sit here, you know, we, you asked the question a few episodes back, okay, like when do we start pushing back against the church? What we're doing now is laying the roots for this concept of a Christian society. We started doing that when we talked about the monasteries and we talked about we hadn't brought in any rulers, right? We just talked about the guy on the street and how the churches and the bishops and the monasteries were out there working in those areas and helping to educate and provided hospitals. And But there wasn't, and the only organization was a spiritual organization, okay? So now Charlemagne is stepping up in cons- hand in hand with the Pope and creating a political organization based on the same principles. Right. Okay. Which becomes the standard for European life for the next 500, 600, 700, 800 years, however you want to look at it. This concept of the two are the same. If you're a Christian, then that affects where you live and what the laws are where you live. I see. Okay. And and what life is like where you live. And all of Europe is Christian or becomes Christian during these Middle Ages. And so we're going to kind of think through the implications of that. And we'll end up talking about all the different strata of society and how that's shaped by that. And, and what I'm trying to do through this is get us into that mindset. Like, I think we've had this discussion before that the only way we know how to think about things is the way we think about things. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we're so familiar with the phrases of separation of church and state. And we're so familiar with, I make my choices and you make your choices. And, um, which is a very modern concept. Right. Right. And so we're going to go back and try to get into the mindset of someone living in the Middle Ages. Well, that sounds exciting. And how they how they think about that. And so when we're and we're starting with trying to understand Charlemagne and you're going to love this. I'll just give you a little teaser. Guess what one of his favorite books was. Now, he didn't read. He was read, too, right? Because he was illiterate but very intelligent. City of God. Yes. God, nailed it. And we've got some good stuff on it. Charlemagne was a fan of Augustine. Yes. Augustine greatly shaped his teachings and what people did with them greatly shaped medieval society. I'm I'm really... Pieces are coming together, y'all. I feel like we're just knocking on the door of contemporary history like the, yeah. i've really enjoyed doing this to this point <clears throat> and i'm enjoying it even more now because as i study and research i see how it's even more relevant you know like when we were talking about stuff a thousand years ago we were still saying it was relevant 
and we were seeing that. But as every century passes, it becomes more and more relevant. I'm enjoying um, it too, connecting all the dots. So I, I hope people <clears throat> recognize their need to be connected. Because what is that? a lot of what goes on in our society today is about separateness. It about sure is. Putting in their putting people in their block box, calling them names, giving them labels. Um, we're all very connected. We understand those Anyway, I just think it's really important we understand that. We have a need to understand that. You said you had a story to share. I do. Well, not to minimize. I mean, to summarize and to close out, it is very important that we all know we're connected. I also want to hear the story that you have to share. Okay. So before I share my story, in response to one of our uh, friends in our server, what would you say is the main point of episode 65 that we've just done? I would say the main point of episode 65 is the combination of ruling as a king and leading as a pope and those coming together and Charlemagne setting the stage for the Christian the Western civilization, the European culture being Christian culture and the leadership not only being <clears throat> political, but also religious. Yes. And the king becomes an emperor and he's made one by a pope. Yeah. That says a lot. Like you sit there and see that and that says a lot. Um, Did I answer it correctly? Yeah. And you know what? I just thought about that as you were saying that. That might not seem like such a big deal to us. Like even today in the United States of America, when you have a inauguration, there's usually somebody there offering a prayer. There's some religious person in some role at an inauguration, right? Yeah. In uh, other countries, you have coronation. The religious authorities are usually involved in whatever's going on with the political state, right? That didn't, I guess it did happen to some degree, but that became cemented in the Middle Ages. Yeah. You know, had, to, yeah, and a, and a lot of that, anyway, we'll talk about that too, because the barbarians brought a lot of that because of their allegiance to spiritual things. So they were open and ready. Have we made that statement? They were open and ready. for. It was just assumed, you know, when we were talking about the two come together a few episodes back and the nature yeah. of the barbarians, it was assumed that whatever religion you were participating in was fully integrated into who you were. Yeah. So that by Clovis taking on Roman Christianity, that became a full-fledged commitment throughout those people. Okay. Cool. Cool. Yep. Send us Set some it. comments. Join up so we can talk. I want feedback. Love to have some feedback. Okay. So here's my story. You ready? Yes, I am. So... Um, some of this you know, but I'm going to tell the listeners also. Tim's parents, um, when he was born into their family, his dad was a pharmacist, and they owned a drugstore, a drugstore that they bought in the sometime in the late 1950s. I'm pretty sure, okay, or in the 50s, sometimes in the 50s. But the drugstore existed before that, okay. So when they bought the drugstore, they bought the building. With all the stuff in it, I mean, I don't know if they were renting or buying the building, but they had the building and all the equipment, you know, mm -hmm, for a drugstore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And their drugstore had a fountain in it. It was one of those. So it, a fountain. A, 
you know, like a soda fountain. Like you go well, and you I needed sit, you to clarify. Yeah, you sit at the fountain, you get lunch. Okay. You have it actually, and there's a cool side story I won't get into, but like Can, during the sit ins in the South, that was happening in their drugstore. Right? When you say soda fountain, you mean a bar. A bar. With cha- with, with bar stools. stools. Yes. And they serve milkshakes and sodas. Yes. And they okay. also a soda fountain is also the thing that the soda comes out of. They also had Chairs and tables, and I've always called them ice cream chairs and ice cream tables because they're those little like from an ice cream parlor. Yes, with the little wire back chairs, round seat little. Which I know that you have some of those. Exactly, and so what from happened? The drugstore. Exactly. Okay. So that's where I was going with that. And so they're approximately how old? Well, we don't know exactly because I've done some research, but I would say from the forties, okay, and mm. maybe older. I'm so they're not, maybe 80, years, 80 old. years old. Okay, something like that. So when they sold the drugstore, which was in the late 60s uh, they uh, or early 70s, some of the things they kept. And so we have inherited some of those things, like the milkshake maker. And we have a Tom's glass jar for the candies and snacks and stuff. And then we got... An ice cream table and eight chairs and another, they had two ice cream tables. We got both of them, but one of them in sometime in the 80s, I think, the top of it got broken when the Ole Miss Theater Department borrowed it for a show. And so it it was just the base. The other one has a milk glass top. Y'all, if you don't know what milk glass is, it's white like milk, but it's glass. So it kind of looks like marble, but it's glass, right? Gotcha. So we've had this base, and Tim and I have had it for all the years that we... You don't we, have the other one anymore? Yeah. We have that table, which actually, neat story about that table. Tim's parents passed away 2003, 2005. Our son got married in 2017, and at their wedding reception, the little his and her bride and groom table was that table from the drugstore. Okay, cool. So that was kind of like his parents' participation in that, and that's cool. It's actually on our front porch now we have all the chairs that we use for extra chairs and around and we had this base and so i've been wanting to get a milk glass top for that base and use it that same table that already has the top on it at one point was like our kitchen table in one of our previous houses it was there in our kitchen kids ate lunch on it every day lots of history so i discovered on amazon Mm -hmm. you can order glass tabletops already beveled edges the whole deal so we ordered one, clear glass, and the table is now on my back porch. And it's really cool. And there you have it. But when you look, so now it's clear. Now mm. we're talking drugstore in the 40s, 50s, 60s. You ever chew gum? Yeah. What'd you do with your gum when you Stuck went to the restaurant? underneath the table. So guess what's underneath the table? Gum. Yeah, so on the on the milk glass, we just we had left it there because of underneath you can't see it, right? And it was like, okay, well, on this base, gum around the inside of the metal base. Well, now we have a glass top on it, and you can see it. But here's the Are thing: you gonna leave it there? No, this is what I got to thinking about. You're gonna want my base because where was this drugstore? Tupelo, Mississippi. And who lived in Tupelo, Mississippi in the 40s and the 50s? Well, he didn't live there. In the, he, did, he moved away 
He was born in 35. He moved away in 48. Eight. Okay. Chances are there's at least a 50% chance. Probably 30. I'm going to go with I don't 50. Know if, I don't know if he would make it down there to that drugstore. It's not that far. He didn't have any money. He was in a bad part you of town. You are such a party pooper because I totally think that it's at least a 50% chance mm. that Elvis Presley was in this drugstore. And so I'm going with the story. I like, I like going that with That we it. possibly have. Chewing gum. Elvis Presley DNA on yeah. our table. I'm going to go with that. I thought that was a super cool story. I like the story. I've been saving that up. So now when people look through our table, which we haven't had, it's only been I would there leave a the few gum weeks. On it. Oh, it's totally staying. We, That's I mean, what I just said. Did you leave the gum on it? You said yes. You said yeah, no. No. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't hear the question correctly then. Yes, we left the gum on it. We left the gum on it. And with the milk glass top, it doesn't matter. You can't tell that it's there, right? But now with ours, you come sit and look. And if you pay attention, like, what is that? Like, well, because we just thought it's part of history, right? It definitely is. That gum that's on there is about 80 years old. <laughs> it's it's kind of interesting, isn't it? I like it. I can't wait to see it. But we got to put that on the Insta feeds. Oh, yeah. Picture the table. We got it. Yes, for sure. All right. All right. Well, I was so excited about my Elvis I DNA like story. It. I like the Elvis DNA. I like the setup. I like the setup. I just... I have a feeling that his his childhood in Tupelo was very, well, very, a, very low income. There's a picture of him in Tupelo. I, we just, how did we see this? We were watching something about Elvis. I don't remember what. But there's a picture of him in Tupelo winning a, a play-in contest with his guitar when he's like nine or ten. And it's right down the street from the drugstore. That's right, because that's where I went to uh, seventh grade, eighth grade. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's very possible yeah, he I walked think down right. to that drugstore. I think you're store. right. Now, whether he had gum, whether he stuck it on the table, whether he ordered an ice cream, Let's I don't know, did. but I love the odds. I do, too. <laughs> well, thanks for being with us. Thanks for being with us for this episode. Producer Wes thanks you. Angie thanks you. Thank you. And I thank you. Thank you and very we'll much. See you next time. Bye. This has been History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. Please rate and review, subscribe, or follow wherever you stream your podcast. You may also contact us and comment at onethingonly.org. Just click on the History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast tab. You can also support this podcast by checking the link in our bio at ko-fi.com. That's ko-fi.com. Thanks for listening.